television on videos and you'll know, well, that was shot on a Tuesday. Wonderful. Absolutely. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Friendship. And I am thankful for the opportunity that we have to, to go together today to the Word of God and spend time with the living God in His Word. The book of Ephesians says that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has inspired the words that we're going to be looking at today. And the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit can illuminate our minds and hearts so that the Word of God is pressed in on our lives and we're transformed today. And I'd love to give you an opportunity right now. Just take a moment and would you pray for that? For the Holy Spirit to be illuminating your mind and heart and pressing His truth in on your life today. We have an opportunity to meet with the king of heaven and earth in this sermon series called Kingdom Logic. And, and over the course of Mark chapters 9 and 10, there are multiple different lessons about the kingdom of God. And two weeks ago, in the first week of this series, we saw the most important lesson there is about the kingdom of God. What was it? Jesus is the king of the kingdom. That is the most important lesson there is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. They might be saying, wait a minute. Isn't, isn't God the king of the kingdom of God? I mean, it's called the kingdom of God. Shouldn't God be the king of the kingdom of God? Yes. By all means, God is the king of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, come and dwell among us. That's the point of what we saw two weeks ago on that Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus isn't just an ordinary man. He's not even just an extraordinary man like Moses and Elijah who met him on top of that mountain. Jesus is God in the flesh. The very cloud of God's glorious presence descended upon that mountain, gone from Israel for 600 years, having dwelt over the mercy seat, for centuries there in the temple, gone for 600 years, the cloud of God's glorious presence descended upon the mountain that day in order to declare Jesus is God the Son, creator come to dwell among his creation. He is king of the kingdom of God. And because Jesus is king of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is totally different than the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God is totally different than the kingdom of the world. We saw that last week when we saw that when it comes to wanting victory in areas of our life, the world's message is work really hard at it. The world's message is self-effort. You can accomplish anything. You're good enough. Jesus' message to his disciples last week was if you want spiritual victory, the most important victories that there are that can only come when we release all self-effort and instead faith-filled pursuit of Jesus through prayer becomes our primary mode of action. So Jesus says, you want real spiritual victory. Stop trying to do it in your own strength and your own power. Instead, in faith, depend upon me through prayer. And so at the end of last week's message, we asked ourselves a series of questions about how we were seeking victory in all kinds of areas of our life. When it comes to marriages, those who are married, are you seeking beautiful and victorious marriages 
through your own self-effort or primarily through pleading with the Lord in prayer. When it comes to the challenge of raising children, are our primary weapons in that battle the, the weapons of our rules and our lectures? Or is the primary weapon that we have in raising children getting on our knees before the Lord for our kids? When it comes to that sin that so easily entangles, that sin that comes up again and again and again, are we trying to defeat that sin through willpower? Or ultimately, are we battling against that sin through faith-filled dependence upon Jesus in prayer? Jesus says that victories only come through faith, and faith is expressed through our prayer life to him. And so last week, we ended saying, are we, are we battling these things in our own power? in our strength of our flesh, or are we battling through faith in Jesus and through prayer? And we saw that the world tells us there is one pathway to victory, and Jesus tells us that when it comes to spiritual victory, there is a completely different path. What we have seen in this series, and will continue to see, is that the kingdom of God is completely different than the kingdom of the world. That's meant to be represented in the artwork here. You have a city that is upside down in a city that's right side up. And our understanding is, as we look at Jesus teach about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is completely upside down from the world. And the world is completely upside down from the kingdom of God. They're completely different from one another. Kingdom logic is totally different than the world's teaching and the world's way of saying that you can do things. And so we, we recognize Jesus has a totally different pathway for us. And in the message today, we're going to see three different ways in which the kingdom of God is totally different than the world. Starting with how greatness is measured. How greatness is measured. How does the world measure greatness? How does Jesus measure greatness? We're going to see that the world defines greatness as being over others. The king defines greatness as serving others. Look at the first part of our passage. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not, he as Jesus here, did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such, one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, I, I want us to look at the flow of this passage together so that we can all be appropriately frustrated with the disciples together. They're going through Galilee. This is the last time they will be in Galilee before Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus is going through Galilee in stealth mode. He doesn't want people to know that he is passing through. He is going to Jerusalem. Nothing is going to stop that. Not only that, 
He wants to focus his time right now in teaching his disciples about his sacrificial death for the sins of people and his resurrection from the dead. As he teaches his disciples about it, they don't get it. They can only picture a, a victorious and glorious Messiah who's going to lead Israel back to prominence and out from under the, thro- the thumb of Rome. What is this death business you're talking about? What is this suffering servant stuff you're talking about here, Jesus? They don't get it, but instead of asking, as they continue on on their little walk, they drop out of Jesus' earshot and begin to argue about which one of them is the greatest. I can imagine what might have started this conversation. They're just coming off of a moment in which three of them have literally had a mountaintop experience that nine of the others didn't get. Not only that, those nine failed to drive out a demon in Jesus' name while those three were up on the mountaintop. And now they're all back together. And what is the discussion about? Which one of us is the greatest? Pause for a moment and just take all of that in. Jesus teaches his disciples about his sacrificial death on behalf of sinners, that he is going to take on the punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God in our place. And the disciples' response is to create an, a ladder and try and figure out which disciple goes on the top rung of the ladder. The Bible doesn't tell us which disciples started this conversation. You can go ahead and imagine for yourself who might have started the conversation. They're having this argument about which one of them is the greatest, and they are measuring greatness based upon the world's way of measuring greatness. Who is it that is most important among us? Who is it that is over others? Who is it that can get their way? Who is it that ultimately others think of the highest? Jesus says to them, that is the way the world measures greatness, but that isn't greatness in the kingdom. The king defines greatness in the kingdom in a completely different way. How does the king define greatness? Not by trying to climb to the very top of the ladder, Jesus says, but instead by getting to the bottom rung of the ladder, being below others in humility and serving them. He says, that's real greatness in the kingdom. People who will follow my example, king of heaven who came to earth to die for people, that's ultimate service. The kingdom is about that kind of humbling of oneself, that kind of serving of others. He says that's true greatness in the kingdom. Not only that, but true greatness in the kingdom isn't just about service. It's about serving those that others think of as lowly and who can't return that service. I think that's why Jesus pulls this little child to himself and takes this little child in his arms. Because as hard as it is for us to imagine, in this society, children were understood to be on the lower half of the ladder of importance, not worth an adult's time. It's really hard for us to imagine because if there are two ditches that we can drive into, two ditches of error that we can drive into in how we see our kids, one being the ditch of seeing kids as less important than adults and ignoring them, The other being the ditch of seeing our kids as more important than anything, even the Lord, and making them idols in our life. In our society, we tend towards making our children idols. We agree with Whitney Houston that children are our future. We should treat them well and let them lead the way. 
Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make, I'll stop. Right? We, we tend towards uh, un- an understanding of our children where we place them ahead of everything in life. We make them idols. In this society, there was a, a different ditch that they were falling into. That was seeing children as unimportant. The rabbis taught that children weren't worth the time of important men in that society. As a matter of fact, in the Mishnah, it says this, sleeping until midday, Wine in the morning and talking with children will destroy a man. Right? What are the three activities that will destroy a man? Sleeping until midday, wine in the morning, and talking with children. And we see this attitude represented by the disciples. When children start to try to come to Jesus, what do the disciples do? They prevent them. No, you're not important enough to come and have the master's time. And Jesus says, you guys, what are you doing This isn't the appropriate view, but it was the view of their day. Children go on the lower half of the ladder of importance, and Jesus pulls this child to himself, one that the disciples around would have said, that that, that person's not worthy of Jesus' time. And he says, when you welcome one of these people that are thought of as unimportant by society, you welcome me and you welcome the Father." The word he uses here for welcome isn't just to say hi. It is to care for, to bring into your hospitality. He says, when you do that for those who are hurting, for those who are in need, for those who are on the lower half of society's ladder, that is real greatness. I think he also takes this little child into his arms because when we serve an adult, there's a chance that they may reciprocate. If I serve you, there's a chance that you may uh, seek to serve me in return, right? Maybe even by giving me a thank you note. That's a part of how we reciprocate in our society. But those of you who have raised little kids knows there's there's no reciprocation from a little child. They just take and take and take, don't they? They're never like, how how do I give back? Right? A three-year-old never asks, how do I bless mom in all of this? Uh, They're just takers at that age. And Jesus takes this little child and says, I want you to serve people who can't reciprocate in return. What good is it to love those who love you? He says, even the pagans do that. I want you to love those who won't love you in return. I want you to serve those who can't reciprocate, who won't serve you back in return. And so the, the greatest servants are those who in marriage continue to serve their spouse without ever keeping track of whether or not the serving is equal. Right? The greatest in the kingdom are those who are upstairs right now teaching the children among us or back in the preschool area, teaching the children among us and never seeking any sort of credit or recognition for it. They just want to do what Jesus has called them to do and share Jesus with those kiddos. Right? The, the greatest among us are those who are serving, those who are hurting, those who are facing challenges, who, who can't reciprocate. And I'd ask you to just take a moment right now. If we think about this, the world defines greatness as being over others, as being recognized, as being seen as great. The king defines greatness as serving others, being humble, getting low, serving those who, who can't maybe serve you back. Is there any way that the Holy Spirit is calling you to act in this? 
to seek greatness according to the kingdom by serving. Any way that he's calling you to something this morning. The world defines greatness as being over others. The king defines greatness as getting low, being humble, and serving others. This is just the first of three ways that we're going to see today in which the world and the kingdom of God are different. The second is this. The world seeks division. The king calls us to unity in him. The world loves to put us into all sorts of little categories And once we're in those little categories, to pit us against each other in those divisions. And and so maybe it is young against old. Maybe it is urban against rural. Maybe it is based on race. Maybe it's men against women. Whatever it is, it loves to put us into all of these different categories and then pit us against each other in order to create divisions. Jesus says, my kingdom is totally different than that. If you're a part of my following, I want you to be united. I want you to be one and working on the great mission that I have given you. We see this teaching of Jesus as he has to rebuke John for something that John did. Look at this. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. There is this guy, and he's casting out demons. John says it's by the name of Jesus, and Jesus affirms this by what he says. I want to just pause for a second and say, When the Bible talks about doing something in the name of Jesus or in the name of God, that means more than just doing it by the letters that make up that name. It isn't just the use of Yeshua, the name of Jesus, as some sort of magic abracadabra. There's a lot of talk and appropriate singing about there being power in the name of Jesus. When the Bible talks about that power in the name of Jesus, when it talks about doing something in the name of Jesus, it's not just talking about speaking the name and the letters, Yeshua. It is talking about doing things in alignment with Jesus, according to his will, a part of his community and his family. In the Old Testament, when it tells us that we are to praise the name of God, that is the same as praising God. In the New Testament, when we are told that we are baptized into Jesus' name, it isn't just about being baptized into a certain number of letters, a certain arrangement of letters. It is about being baptized into the way of Jesus, baptized into the will of Jesus. In the New Testament, when we're told that our prayers will be answered if they are in the name of Jesus, And we are also told that our prayers will be answered if they are according to God's will. Those are the same thing. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray according to the will of Jesus, in alignment with his desires and for his great sake. And so we recognize that when we're talking about doing something in the name of Jesus, it's more than just speaking the name as if it is some sort of magic abracadabra. It is about being in alignment with the will and way of Jesus. And this guy is casting out demons for Jesus' sake. 
by the power and in the way of Jesus. And John sees him and he says, oh, we got to put a stop to that. Wait, why? Why is John trying to put a stop to that? John says, because he's not following, what's the word he uses here? Us, right? Can you hear the pride in that? Everything is about following Jesus, isn't it? And John has uh, grown so inflated here as they're having discussions about which one of them are at the top of the ladder of importance that he says, no, what's really important is following us, Jesus. We're your equals in this. It's about whether or not you're a part of Team Peter, James, and John that's important here. What? Jesus says to him, you know what? There are some who are against me. Some who aren't a part of the kingdom. Some who won't accept the gospel. Some who don't live their lives for Jesus. They're against us. But he said, then there's this other group of people. And they're for us. They're followers of Jesus. No, they may not be a part of team Peter, James, and John, but they're a part of team Jesus, and you're not to work against them. The world seeks to create divisions all over the place. Jesus says, no, if this person is doing things in my name, they're a part of my team. And just because they're not a part of your little clique, John, doesn't mean that you should be working against them. We're all to be united under the banner of Jesus, carrying out the mission of Jesus. And this guy was a part of that. Jesus says, celebrate that. When we see other churches, gospel-oriented, Bible-believing churches that are experiencing revival, we don't look at that and go, oh, why them and not us? No, we celebrate. Those are our brothers and sisters, and we're excited for what God is doing in their midst. When we see a, a fellow gospel-believing, uh, Bible-believing church that is going through struggle, maybe the falling of a leader or something like that, we don't go, oh, good. Maybe that's increased market share for us. Right? What? No, Jesus says, you are all a part of my family, involved together in my mission. Those are your brothers and sisters. Your heart breaks when bad things happen in that body of believers. And you pray for them and you seek to do what you can to help them. Within our body of believers, we recognize the world is constantly pushing us towards division by trying to get us to make a priority things that are other than following Jesus and carrying out his mission. And we don't give in to it. We recognize God's plan for unity among his people is the absolute priority of knowing Jesus intimately and carrying out his mission. And we don't allow the other things that are around us in the world to creep up in importance. We keep them deep in the back. Jesus' life is all about you. Knowing life is all about you. Everything else is rubbish and refuse compared to this one great thing of knowing you and being a part of the mission. That unifies us. And so we recognize while the world seeks division, the king calls us to unity in him, under his name, as a part of his will and his kingdom. Right? The final thing that we see in this passage, where the kingdom of God differs from the way of the world is this. The world ignores or minimizes sin. The king calls us to ruthlessly eradicate sin from our lives. The world ignores or minimizes sin. 
It used to be that all the world did was minimize sin. That ultimately, uh, sins like lying and cheating and stealing and gossip and idolatry and on and on we could go. That the world's primary tactic was to minimize those things so that we didn't think of them as that important or that big a deal. However, over the last few decades, we've seen a transition where instead of minimizing the importance of sin, the world's ploy is to deny that it exists altogether. There is no standard of right or wrong that's necessary for there to be sin. You're living your truth. I'm living my truth. And who is it to say that my truth is in any way wrong? You, you don't have any authority to say that. I don't have any authority to say your truth is wrong. We're just living the ways that we want. And there's really no standard here. Oh, this last week, I read an article about a celebrity who, was, uh, who is one of the finalists for the position of host of The Daily Show on Comedy Central. And he was recently caught, I guess we'll say, having told many, many, many lies and false stories about people in his life. He has uh, lied and misrepresented uh, through stories about himself, about his family, about the people that he knows, about celebrities, about politicians. He has apparently just made up and lied again and again and again about all of these different things. And when a reporter asked him, do you feel bad about the way that you have lied and told people things that aren't true and damaged people's reputations in the process? He said, I don't feel bad at all because the emotional truth that I am communicating in these stories is more important than the factual truth. Right? The emotional truth is more important than the factual truth. What? What a great big pile of nonsense. Are you kidding me? So much nonsense. The emotional truth. This is the world that we live in. There's no sense of right or wrong. If I choose to determine that I'm going to say whatever I want, whenever I want, that's up to me. You, you don't have any capacity to tell me that there's right or wrong in that. And that is the world we live in. My, my sexual ethic is whatever I choose for it to be. Whether or not I tell the truth or a lie, well, that's up to me. And you don't really have any ability to say that's wrong. My financial ethic is whatever I can get away with. And on and on we go. And so we live in a world that not only works to minimize sin, but now declares that there's no such thing altogether. In the kingdom of God, the view is very different. The view of the king is very different than that. We read, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness... How will you make it salty again? 
Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We'll get to the salt uh, in a minute. Jesus says, newsflash, there is such a thing as sin. It's anything that goes against the character of God, that's sin. It's anything that goes against the commandments of God that flow out of the character of God, that's sin. It's anything done in selfishness, which is what the commandments of God are about, selfishness and love, which goes back to the character of God. That's sin, Jesus says. And sin is serious. Can, can you tell he wants it to be taken seriously within his kingdom here? He says, if you're a person who is spending your life causing others to fall into sin, and scholars debate when he says, little children who believe in me, whether he is talking about all believers who are his children who believe in him, or whether he's talking about young believers who happen to believe in him. I think the point is the same either way. If your life is about causing other people to live in sin, Jesus says you're in a lot of trouble. It would be better for you, he says, if you were tied to a giant stone weighing two tons and cast to the bottom of the sea so that you could see the water closing around you, so that your lungs would fill with water rather than oxygen, dying the excruciating death of drowning. Right? This is what Jesus wants us to imagine here. He says, that would be better than what lies ahead for those who live their lives causing other people to live in sin and against God. Then he says, if your eye causes you to sin, your hand causes you to sin, your foot causes you to sin, chop it off, cut it off, whatever you need to do. Now, passages like Deuteronomy 14 or 1 Samuel 18 make it clear that God does not want us mutilating our bodies. And so what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is using an intentionally exaggerated or hyperbolic form of teaching in order to communicate the seriousness of this. He's saying, you, you guys, how do I communicate to you how serious sin is? Uh, I'm going to do so by telling you to do something that you would never imagine doing. When you see sin in your life, do whatever you have to do in order to ruthlessly eradicate it from your life, is what Jesus is saying here. He says, because ultimately, those who continue on living in sin rather than living in the way of the kingdom, wind up going to Gehenna. Right? The word translated hell here represented a valley outside of Jerusalem, a valley in which the people of Israel before the exile sacrificed children to the false god Molech. When they returned from the exile, they understood the activities that took place in that valley to be so abhorrent, so evil, that they considered the valley to be cursed. And so they made it the garbage dump for Jerusalem. And in Jesus' day, it was the dump where all refuse, where all carcasses, where all trash went and were burned. And that, that stinking, right, horrible, refuse-filled mess is what Jesus says is the best picture of what awaits those who continue in their sins, continue to live for sin rather than for the kingdom. He says, so, so I want you to take this seriously. You get that idea? I get a sense from the warning that Jesus gives here 
that he is recognizing the very real possibility that there will be those who claim the name of Jesus and those who think they're followers of Jesus who, in fact, prove not to be by the fact that they live primarily in sin. So he says that there are those who are meant to be salt. Followers of Jesus are meant to be salt. Salt in Jesus' day was primarily used as a preservative, not for taste. And those people are to be preservatives of righteousness and love within this world. But what happens if the salt isn't actually salt? There's no righteousness and love as is intended. If salt is not salt, it is of no use in preserving food. And in the same way, the one who claims to follow Jesus but doesn't actually follow Jesus, the one who claims to be a part of the kingdom of love and righteousness but isn't actually seeking love and righteousness but is living in sin, they are of no use, just like salt that isn't actually salt. Jesus says instead, seek saltiness. Not, not the way we use the word in terms of being angry. Right? No, seek saltiness in, in the sense of righteousness, in the sense of what the kingdom is about. Then, then you are my followers. What does the world say about sin? The world ignores or minimizes sin, which is part of the reason that it gets so quiet right now during the sermon, right? Because the world ignores or minimizes sin. And when we begin to hear Jesus' words about cutting off body parts or millstones, we're like, what? That seems like an overreaction. Why does it seem like an overreaction? Because the world has taught us again and again to minimize or ignore sin. When we see it through the eyes of God, we see it as a complete and utter abomination before our holy maker and judge. It's a completely different understanding. The king calls us to ruthlessly eradicate sin in our lives. How do we do that? Well, let's combine last week and this week. We don't ruthlessly eradicate sin through our own willpower. We ruthlessly eradicate sin by having faith in Jesus and seeking him in prayer. Isn't that what we saw last week? We ruthlessly eradicate sin by seeking Jesus, placing our faith in him and seeking him in prayer. And so I would invite you right now to think about an area of your life where you haven't taken sin as seriously as Jesus calls you to. Or, or maybe an area of your life where you've allowed sin to kind of stick around the periphery in a way that hasn't been healthy for you. And I invite you right now to spend some time confessing before the Lord and praying for Jesus' power, the strength of the Holy Spirit to eradicate that sin. To have what is needed in order to overcome what the enemy has brought into your life. Every, team, every time we participate in communion, the idea of eradicating sin is before us. We recognize we don't have the power and capacity to eradicate sin from our account before the Lord. Only Jesus is able to do that by dying as our substitute. And so as we go to the table, we won't recognize we, we weren't able to completely eradicate sin from our lives and we need what Jesus has done in order to pay our price.
we also recognize we don't have any power or capacity in ourselves to get rid of sin today. That only comes through the work of Jesus that brings the Spirit of God into our lives. And so as we go to the table, eradicating sin is before us. Jesus' death on our behalf in order to forgive our sins. Jesus' death and resurrection so that we might have the power to grow away from sin and towards Christ's likeness. These are the things that are in our mind. These are the things we're giving thanks for. These are the things that we're praising God for. Again, take a moment to just praise and thank God for, for His goodness, for the way that Jesus has forgiven your sins through His work of taking them upon Himself on the cross. For what Jesus has done so that the Spirit could indwell us and begin the process of growth in the kingdom. Oh, what goodness there is in this. We celebrate it. Jesus, what goodness there is in what you have done on our behalf. We are so thankful to you. We're going to continue to praise Jesus' name in song. And as we do, I want to invite you, when you're ready, to make your way to the tables that are in the four corners of the room and grab the bread and the cup and you can bring those back to your seat and we'll take those elements together in just a few minutes.